Thank you, Anne. We're going to be talking about purpose this morning, and your use bulletins, they act as good fans too, if you, if you need it. It's going to be a bit warm. Hopefully the sermon won't heat us up too much. That was my only joke, and it wasn't even funny. Uh, I haven't got any jokes this morning. I have one. I might share it later. Depends. They laughed this morning at the 8am service. All right, you might find this hard to believe, but there are times when I find myself in a bit of a mood, a bit grumpy, a bit terse. No, no, shake your head. Please shake your head. Now, my moods are not normally long-lasting or anything serious, just a bit of space and some good sleep, and I'm good to go. Now, that is unless I fail to notice that I'm feeling a bit grumpy. If I don't notice then whatever small things my better half chooses to do, well, my less than courteous responses tend to result in some intense fellowship, if you get my meaning. My point is this, if I notice how I feel, then I can not only temper my responses, I can kind of you know, think before I speak, but I can also begin the process of that restoring back to my normal self, my usual self. Genesis 1 is a bit like this. It presents us with the truth of who we really are. It presents us with our normal self and our God-given purpose. Not to rub our noses in it, not to get us down or to make us feel bad about it or so we can place blame, but so that we can know and name how we feel. And then we can begin the process of restoring who we really are. It's a restoration that, of course, we know finds its fulfillment in Jesus himself. Jesus who said in John chapter 4, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. He's speaking about the water of the world, the fallen world. Whatever we drink, whatever we try to take in to kind of fill that gap hole is, is never going to be enough. We'll always be thirsty. And then he says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Notice he doesn't say the water of the world won't help your thirst. It just won't satisfy it. And that's where we get caught up. We keep thinking this stuff can help us and it's only temporary. We always end up thirsty. He's also saying that in Jesus we have eternal life. In him we are fully restored. In Jesus we find our real self. But let's not get ahead of it. We've got to get through Genesis 1 first. We'll preach that later. Three things this morning. The Trinity. The Trinity. That's what you're here for, isn't it? That convoluted idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is that what's going on in Genesis 1 when God speaks of himself as plural? I don't know if you noticed it, but he says, our, we. Is that what's going on? We'll find out. We're going to talk about the image of God. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Is it important? And more, better still, does it demand anything of us? Does it matter? Does it, we're going to talk about that. And lastly, we're going to talk about the male and the female. Is gender a social construct? And yes, in what may well be a trigger warning, we will go there this morning. We are going to go there as we try to unlock the greatest purpose for our lives. Now, remember when I first read Genesis, talked the other week, I was a young boy and I was looking in this book for the meaning of life. Now, what's it all about? Why are we here? And I missed it. I couldn't find it. But it is so obvious. And I can't believe how obvious it is now I look at this in my old age. 
That was in that. Why are we here? What's our purpose? What's our meaning? Where's our joy? Where's our hope? It was in the passage we just read. And that's what we're going to close with. All right, let's pray. And then we're going to pick up um, in chapter 1, verse 26. We're only going to do really one verse this morning, maybe two. Lord, we thank you for your great love. Open our hearts and minds to your will, your way. Help us to see how it was so we know how it will be again. Help us to use that to grow and change and transform our minds into the likeness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 26, this is what it said, and we're talking about the Trinity first up. Well, kind of. God said, let us make mankind in our image, our likeness. Let us, let us. These simple classic words are the subject of endless debates and discussions and rejections of the scriptures. I don't know why, because it's actually really simple. It's really, really simple. It's a grammatical thing. It's called, the technical term for what we have here is the plural of majesty. I know you're on the edge of your seats for this one. It's the plural of majesty. It goes like this. When a king speaks or ruler speaks, they often speak of my, they don't speak of my rule, they speak of our rule, even though they're speaking of themselves. A current example would be how I speak of this church. When I speak of this church, I speak of our church. And it is our church, but it's also my church. I'm responsible for it. The buck mostly stops with me. But I would never dream of saying this is my church because that would devalue your contribution, who you are, the council of saints, what you are to make up this church. In this way, what we read here is just a simple matter of grammar. The purpose of the let us is to capture the wholeness and the fullness of a generous God who chooses to involve the council of saints. We learn about that later in the scriptures and us in his creation. It's not designed to, it's not to wander us into silly debates of polytheism and all of that. All right, great. Told you you'll be on the edge of your seats for that one. And what about the Trinity? I'm going to talk about this just quickly because if you've been in Christian circles long enough and you've heard Genesis preached, I've heard preachers say that this is proof that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what's going on here. Honestly, it's not. It's not. At least not specifically. And the reason is obvious. I mean, the battles that were faced by the first God-botherers, do you like that term, you God-botherer? Yeah, I think it's a badge to wear. You know, that's what Christians was a negative term. We took it on as a positive term. God-botherers is like that. The first God-botherers, they didn't care about these theological battles of Trinitarianism versus Unitarianism. But ones, and to kind of quote what my Bible commentary had to say on this, the battles of the time when this was first written down are of a God who is himself uncreated, merciful, and sovereign. That's what Genesis is proclaiming. God who is uncreated, he always was and is and will be. He's merciful and he's sovereign. Merciful because he shows us mercy when we deserve it and he's sovereign because it's his way or the highway. Like seriously, God's the boss. Now that's what they were proclaiming. Where those outside were proclaiming multiple gods, demons who are capricious, unpredictable and often immoral. At the end of the day, it's just the English translation that's clumsy, and the intent is to capture this wholeness and fullness of God as is. And our, I hope that was the most boring part of the sermon. 
I enjoyed researching that and reminded me of a lot of study I did and there was a lot more and I deleted at least 500 words. So I feel good about that this morning. The Trinity, it's not what we have here, not specifically. What we have is an expression that takes into account this fullness, this wholeness of God, along with the heavenly courts and our involvement in the creation which he made. All right, image of God. Now, this one's important. Now, many preachers take this opportunity to kind of expound what it means to be made in the image of God. They'll start talking about things we have in common with God, maybe a conscience, a soul, ability to reason, free will, fellowship with the creator and so on. But I'm not going to do that. Why? Because the text doesn't do that. The text does not do that. Verse 26 is not interested in defining what it is to be made in the image of God. It's not there. Besides, I just, I can never shake the words of one of my high school teachers who was great influence to me. He was good. And whenever I come up with this kind of convoluted answer to a problem, he would just say, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. I was corrected this morning after saying that. Apparently that's not PC. You need to say, keep it super simple. So that's the way we say it now if you're a teacher. Keep it super simple. Yeah. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Teachers in the room, go for that. 26. Oh, verse 26. Again. And I do know what you're thinking. We just spent, what, five, six, seven, maybe ten minutes on just like three words. We've got a lot way to go. We're going to go fast. These are important words. Verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Just seems simple enough, doesn't it? But we're going to focus on that make mankind in our image, in our likeness, just for a moment. Because this image of God, it's important. It's a big deal. And it's a, it's a, it's a clear separation from similar pagan sources of creation. Stories that were circulating in humanity's earliest recorded history. There are other stories that are very similar to what we see in Genesis that are outside of the Bible. And this, this fact, it causes some to doubt and question what we read here in Genesis. I actually had a coffee with a couple a number of years ago who were thinking about joining church. And the husband's biggest gripe was that, you know what, we can't really trust the Bible because Genesis... You know, these, these, these other stories from Babylon, they're, they're all the same. It's just a copy. It's just some people's copies. And I couldn't really talk him around. That's how it goes. His mind was made up that this was not the word of God because bits of it existed elsewhere in other religions. Well, obviously, I think it's a mistake. I mean, I know I'm a Holy Spirit-filled Christian with a Jesus-loves-me complex, but what do we do with that? I know I'm biased. Let me illustrate. To take this question of this text, as, to, to ignore the text for that reason is to ignore the golden rule. Who knows what the golden rule is? One? Two? Yeah. The golden rule. Jesus' words himself. What did he say? I've got it here now. He said, do to others what you would have them do to you. Jesus said those words. We call it the golden rule. Why do we call it the golden rule? Because it's pretty important. It's not unique to Jesus. These words exist in almost every religion, every social structure that works across time, across recorded history. These teachings are important. We might not live up to them, 
but they're always a bedrock of just about every religion. Now, does this mean that Jesus copied them? He heard them from someone else, so he copied that. He must have copied everything else, and yeah, we can just throw it out. Of course not. All it means is the rule is self-evident. The golden rule is self-evident. Other religions get it right because they see it in the creation. This is a matter of natural revelation is the technical term, something of God that we can see in nature and ourselves. And that's why we see so much good stuff in many religions. It doesn't mean they're all, we're copying it or whatnot. It just means that what they come up with is self-evident. All right, what about the image of God? That's what we're talking about. Well, firstly, we can see clearly that mankind is set apart from the rest of creation because we're the only ones who share his image and his likeness. Now, this language has its roots in the culture, as does the we, us language. The Egyptian and Mesopotamian kings and high-ranking officials of the times when this was first written down were called the image of God. Those outside the scriptures, if you were a king or a queen or a high-ranking official, someone who is revered and noble, then you would be called the image of God. Never this title would be given to peasants or the average Joe. So the big deal about being made in God's image is not that we look like God or have special God-like attributes or can somehow achieve a God-like status. It is to say that to God, all humanity is royal. To God, all humanity is royal. All humanity is related to God, not just the kings and queens, not just the special people of society. Everyone is related to God. What you see and feel for these revered kings, God sees and feels for you. You, my friends, are the kings and queens of the creation. That's what it means to be made in God's image. Probably why C.S. Lewis adopts that in Narnia, isn't it? In the Chronicles of Narnia, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, they are the kings and queens of Narnia. Not that I'm using a fictitious book to back up the scriptures, but you get what I'm saying. All right, it's not just about being made in God's image. There is also a likeness of God in humanity. And this, this I think, is again super important because it suggests that something of God can be known by studying we, his image. You can know something of God by looking at the person next to you or behind you. Have a look. Have a look at him. And you can know something of God by looking at the person next to you. Have a look at him. Have a good smile. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It's pretty cool that we can look at the person next to us us and know something of God. Of course, this comes with responsibility. But that's a sermon for another day. I can't preach everything at once. All right, I hope that helps. Because we've got to get on to that hot topic. I know you're all hanging for this one. What's he going to say? We're going to get hate mail. We're going to get hassled on Facebook or YouTube. Wouldn't be the first time. And no, I don't have any jokes about it. There's no joke. Male and female. Here we go. Verse 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
Let me start just by saying straight up, I really dislike seeing this passage used to demonise our LBGTQI plus friends. Not because the text isn't speaking the truth, but because it's entirely unhelpful to do so. It's kind of like me saying to my kids just randomly out of the blue whenever I feel like it, you know what, you're a sinner, you fall short of the glory of God. How's that helpful? It's true, of course, but it Received out of context, it comes as a, as a put-down, a, a labelling, and it's, it's supposed to come as a truth that points us to something greater. Having said that, let me speak of the truth God is pointing us to in Genesis 1 verse 27. There are two clear winners. Firstly, God is affirming sexuality. Absolutely, no doubt about it. He created both male and female, which means... That sexuality is not a product of cultural conditioning. Sexuality is a gift from God. In fact, it's a blessed gift from God, which we'll see in a moment. And even if you don't believe the scriptures, this is actually one of those self-evident things. Functional separation of the sexes is something that every culture across time, every religion has shared. It's only the recent woke West who are flirting with this idea and it's having dire consequences. Secondly, the sexes are equal. They're equal. Absolutely. All are one as affirmed by Genesis chapter 3 and here it's established as we are both made equally in the image of God. And this man and woman equally made in the image of God It's blessed. It's blessed. Verse 28, have a look at it. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now to get to the gravity of this, this is where the rubber hits the road, I think, in today's message. We need to understand what a blessing is. A blessing is a gift. And the gift expressed here is a powerful one. It is like God turning full-faced towards the recipient, looking upon us and his creation and giving us the greatest gift of all. Purpose and sexuality. That's what's here. Sexuality we've covered. We'll do so in a bit more in a minute. So let's talk about purpose. And you might not like it. Well, maybe you will. Hopefully it'll be a bit of a aha moment because it was for me when I really spotted this and started thinking about it. That's what we're here for. Let's stop for a moment. Where do you think people find purpose in our culture today? Any examples? Where do people find purpose? Surf life saving. saving. In clubs, memberships to things. Yep. Workplace, definitely a big one. What else? Family, yeah, that's a big one. Anything else? Which ones? The desires of their hearts. hearts. Absolutely. If I can just be the real me, I find purpose and meaning in all of that stuff as too. And church, yep, definitely. They're good ones. Now, these things may be good and proper. I looked it up on Google. It knows everything. It told me that the right places, you know, to find purpose and meaning, reading, helping others, 
cultivating gratitude, altruism, listening to others, building community, being heard. These are the ways you find meaning and purpose, according to secular Google. I think that's all garbage. I mean, who doesn't think they're important? Of course we think it's important. But the truth is, most people find their daily meaning and purpose in the things you just named. Holidays. What they buy. What job they have. In their kids. And even in the arguments and conflicts they think they win. And I reckon that's a lot bigger than we realise. A lot of people find meaning in arguments and conflict that they win. Think about it. Who doesn't enjoy preventing that tailgater from getting where they want to go. Yeah, they're behind you, bothering you in traffic, and you find a way of going to make sure they close that gap, won't let them pass. Don't you just love that one? Yeah? Oh, I do. Come on. Oh. <laughs> well, how about this one? It's so easy to win an argument, though. Like, it's very easy to win an argument. All you've got to do is not listen to the other person. That's it. So easy. And a lot of people find value in that. And actually, on that note, the marriage course does start in three weeks. Tuesday night, 7 to 9 p.m., check out the pew slip. It's good fun. We talk about conflict and lots of stuff. Week five is my favourite. We talk about sex for a whole night. And there's homework. <laughs> where do we find purpose? According to Genesis 1, I should say, where should we find purpose? Verse 28. We find purpose in building a life and a home. That's what it means to conquer nature. You don't have a house full of animals, do you? We build a life and a home in partnership with another human being with the intention of making babies. According to Genesis, we find purpose in building a life and a home in partnership with another human being with the intention of making babies babies. This is our greatest and highest calling. But it's so traditional, so limited, so exclusive. It's not accessible to everybody. Well, to such things I say, remember my high school teacher, keep it super simple. Having meaning and purpose is actually really simple. Now, obviously, this doesn't work out for everyone. But that doesn't mean it isn't right. Doesn't mean it's not where we find the greatest meaning and purpose outside of our relationship with God. Relationship with God's next week. So let me just break this down quickly. Perhaps you have the kind of family unit that Genesis is talking about. For you, I hardly need to preach it, but I do want to remind us of something. And it's pretty obvious. Did you know you're replaceable in just about everything you do? You know, you go to work, they can find someone else to do your job. You drive the car down the street, someone else can do that. Go to the shopping, whatever it is, you are replaceable, except to your family. You are not replaceable to your husband or wife. You're not replaceable to your children. That says something, doesn't it? Nobody can step into that gap. People can try, and obviously things don't always work out the way they're supposed to. The creation is broken but you are not replaceable there. Perhaps you've had what Genesis is talking about and it didn't work or isn't working. Fix it. 
Invest in your relationships. Invest in your children. Pray constantly. Lean into Jesus. The closer we get to him, the closer it draws us to others. That's a fact of creation. When we draw closer to God, we can't help but draw closer to others. So if you're having trouble drawing closer to others, aim for God. And that will be thrown in. Is my two seconds of help. Perhaps you don't have it at all. Perhaps it's not on the table. That's okay. Start thinking about who you can invest in who does. Now, this is interesting, I think. Think about who's got grandchildren. How good is it to invest in the grandchildren? If you're blessed enough to have a great relationship there, I know grandparents, they talk, oh, they just annoy me when they talk about their grandkids, right? It's so annoying. I don't have that. And I can see how important it is by how annoying they are when they talk about it. And the best thing is, I know, you can give them back, right? It's important. It's a wonderful thing. Perhaps you don't have grandchildren, nephews, nieces, friends. Maybe you've got a brother or sister who, who are married. Invest in their relationship. What I mean is send them on a date night and look after the nephews, nieces, grandkids. Now, this might just sound like, are oh, you just serving others? You are. But mark my words, their blessing, because it is a blessing, this thing, this, this family unit is blessed by God. It's, it's somehow special. We can't explain it, and we can't explain it because it comes from God, right? That's why it makes no sense. You think about your best and most important memories, and of sometimes the worst, sadly. They're in the family unit, are they not? Right? That's because it's blessed by God. And when you invest in someone else's marriage, that blessing actually flows onto you. And you will receive it. That's why being a grandparent is so powerful, so important. Being an uncle or an aunt. It can be others. It can be friends, family, church family. Mark my words, this blessing will flow onto you. Now lastly, again, maybe none of these things are an option. You, my friend, have Jesus. And he is enough. He's enough, right? I can only imagine what it would be like to invest all of my time in him. To open my Bible and not have some kid, right? Reading the same page over and over again because I'm getting interrupted constantly. I love my kids. But I'm just, imagine what it would be like to be able to invest in him with your whole heart, with your whole life. Jesus is just so wonderful. Let's wrap this up. I know it's hot. Trinity's not in Genesis 1, at least not specifically. We have here just this all-encompassing expression of God and in his mercy and grace and sovereignty, he has included us in looking after his creation. He's included the heavenly courts and involved them in it with this language of we. The image of God. We are kings and queens of the creation. We are royalty to God. We are equal. We are important. That's what matters here. And the male and female, gender is not a social construct. And this, in this truth, we find purpose and meaning. We find this meaning of life here. To live for God in partnership with another human being with the intention of making babies. It's that simple. It really is. And I know full well it's not an option for us all. The fall, our sin, it's got a cost. 
But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Besides, if you're in this boat and it has failed or it's no longer a possibility, know this, God will make it up to you. The new creation is without all of that baggage and it awaits you. And his son Jesus is there for each of us. He comes as someone who has suffered for and with us. In him comes a purpose and a meaning, something that we don't strive for, but something that takes roots in our hearts and the hearts of all those who choose to follow him. I've got some homework for us. And it's not week five of our marriage course. Pick up your Bibles this week and read Genesis 1 and 2. Every week we used to get our Bibles out in church before COVID. And we sometimes have the text on the screen, but not always. We'd follow along. And I think it's a wonderful thing to be doing. And we stopped doing it because we're allowed to share Bibles, but we can do that again. So I really need to kind of, I've been lazy getting us back into that, just opening the text. And it is the easiest book of the Bible to find. So we really have little excuse, but it's great to open it and follow along as we go. Helps us focus, helps us um, uncover what this text is saying to us with the help of the Holy Spirit. Read Genesis 1 and 2 next week. I'm not going to cover it verse for verse. I'm not going to go through. There's kind of two accounts um, of, of, of Adam and Eve in Genesis. I'm not going to do the second account so much. We're going to jump straight into the fall next week and what it meant when sin entered the world. Um, so please, read Genesis 1 and 2. Strap yourselves in for next week. Hopefully we'll be a bit cooler. All right, let us pray. Lord, thank you for your great love. Thank you that you have given us purpose, hope, meaning, a way forward in this mess of a world. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would restore that in our own lives, that you would strengthen marriages and relationships and between mother and son and father and daughter and vice versa. Lord, we just pray that you would grow the relationships in this church and help us to point people to you in the way that we treat and love each other. In Jesus' name, amen.